So, um, as we kind of already heard, Martin Luther was a monk. He was supposed to be a lawyer. And in fact, his dad, a coal miner, uh, worked very hard over many years to save up enough to send uh, his son Martin, who as it turns out was extraordinarily bright, to law school. At some point during <clears throat> law school, he was traveling between home and school, uh, and there was a very se severe thunderstorm, and he was afraid that he was going to die. And so he swore to St. Anne, because this was back when he still did that kind of thing, uh, that if God would preserve him, he would become a monk. Well, he made it, and he entered the monastery. And as you might imagine, that infuriated his father and created a rift between them that lasted a good chunk of the rest of his life, um, although there's indication that they did eventually patch things up. So, as a monk, um, Luther was we might say, tortured uh, internally. He could not escape this nagging feeling that he was not enough. He tended to fast more than his fellow monks, his brothers, uh, to the point where later in his life he would have gastrointestinal problems because he fasted that hard. He would pray more. He would do confession more than everybody else. And in fact, he, he confessed his sins so much to his confessor that his confessor actually said, okay, stop. Go out and commit a sin so you have something to confess. You haven't confessed anything interesting. Um, and yet, he couldn't escape this nagging feeling. And I kind of identify with that. Because the more that we examine ourselves, the more realistically, I should say, we examine ourselves, the easier it is to find ways that maybe we haven't lived up to standards. Anybody's standards, really. We all have our own personal standards. And if you look at yourself and the way you go about your life, do you live up to even your own standards? Well, no. Probably not. Even if your standard is, I will never think a bad thought about myself, which feels very millennial Gen Z. Um, I can say that. I'm a millennial. Uh, even if that is your standard you'll probably not live up to that, let alone God's standards. And so Luther started to realize, like, even his best works were filled with bad intention. Like, deep down within himself, he, his desire was to justify himself. Now, like, like I said, uh, Luther was extremely bright. And uh, they picked up on this. And so they eventually sent him to school to become a doctor of the church, a, a professor, a teacher. And he, um, he got exposed to the Bible in its original languages. At, this was a point in time where the medieval Catholic Church controlled the Bible, access to the Bible, and it was all entirely in Latin. 
which means that it was translated into Latin. The Bible was originally written in Greek and Hebrew, and there's like a couple of sections in Aramaic for some reason. And he noticed some differences. So where the Bible in Latin, the one that he likely had good chunks memorized, uh, it would say like, do penance. And if you were a good Catholic, or especially if you were a medieval Catholic, penance was the things that you had to do in order to cover your own sin. You go to confession, you tell the priest, hey, I did this, I stole this, or whatever, and the priest would say, okay, 50 Our Fathers, 30 Hail Marys, and crawl on your knees around the church or something. I don't know. Just making that last one up. Um, But that's not what it actually said. In Greek, it just said repent. And as Luther starts looking even more carefully, he starts to pick up on certain things. Like the Apostle Paul would say that Abraham was just justified by his faith. And maybe everything that he had been fed by this medieval Catholic church had more to do with tradition and less, and really power, and less to do with what God's Word actually says. And so he started to question a lot of what he had been fed. He was not the first person to do so. Uh, Jan Hus, Wycliffe, like lots of others did that. They were executed for their problem, or for their troubles. Um, that almost happened to Luther a bunch, by the way. So Luther is starting to, to, to realize that actually God's grace is, is immensely generous. It's not about proving your worth. It's not about like you know, whipping yourself to show God that you're sorry. It's not about doing much of anything. It's about receiving. It's about what God did in Jesus. And around this same time, There were some, shall we say, shenanigans at the highest levels of leadership in the medieval Catholic Church. There was a bishop, Albrecht of Mainz, um, over certain areas in what we would now call Germany. And uh, he was quite power-hungry, and he sought to actually oversee as bishop a, um, a larger, much larger portion of land than was technically allowed. It was illegal for him to do this. And the punishment was a fine as we all know, even in today's language, uh, if the punishment is a fine, that makes it legal for rich people, if, if that makes sense. Well, by coincidence, the Pope was broke, which is also an odd thought to us. He desperately needed money. So when this Bishop Albrecht approached him about taking over all this extra territory, the Pope was like, hmm, that, that would result in a fine, and I need money. Yeah, let's do that. Now, in order to get the money to pay the fine, Albrecht, um, he, he uh, allowed the sale of something called indulgences. An indulgence was a piece of paper that basically sprung you or someone you knew and loved out of purgatory, which was a Catholic idea that you go to purgatory and pay for the sins you committed, and after like 10,000 years, depending on how bad you are, you get to go to heaven. Uh, An indulgence just let let you go for free. You were basically buying salvation. 
Well, Luther sees this, and he gets furious. It's like, this isn't the gospel. This is, this is bad. Now, Luther was not the only person to think this. Actually, there were plenty of people who thought these indulgences were a bad idea. And so he starts writing out 95 theses, these ideas that he wanted to debate with his fellow academics. And he put them in like, like on a, a, the, the church door in Wittenberg, which is like the way, it's like posting in on Facebook saying, hey, I want to talk about these things. Except you'd probably get a little more uh, actual debate instead of people just yelling at each other. And his goal was debate, but he also wanted to alert his bishop, Albrecht, that, hey, they're doing this and that's not okay. You should put a stop to it. He had no idea that, he, that his bishop was the one who authorized it. Normally, they would have just punished the monk who got out of line or the teacher, and that was it. But now, Luther has something else. He has the Gutenberg Press. Well, not him, but somebody took it down, translated it into German, and published it. And within weeks, it was everywhere. And the Catholic Church had a really big problem. So Luther stepped in on a hornet's nest that was political, economic, theological, philosophical, and it blew up in his face, and the world was never the same. Many years later, they wanted to call this new church that they were forming uh, the Lutheran Church, and Luther hated it. He said, no. Call it essentially the gospel church, the evangelical church, which is what that word means. But they stuck with Luther, and that irritated him, which kind of tickles me, so let's just go with that. So let's look at some pass, uh, well, one passage in per- excuse me, particular that um, I think might shed some light on just how radical of an idea this is. So, Phil, if we could have the, the first slide up from Romans 3. I sprung this on Phil like last minute, so. Okay, this is the Apostle Paul writing. This is Romans. His whole point in this section is to show everybody, Jew, Gentile alike, cannot live up to God's standards. Like, we were, like I was saying earlier, like, you can't even live up to your own standards, let alone the standards of a perfect creator of the universe. Uh, Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For works of the law, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So, that's oddly straightforward for Paul. It's basically saying when you get God's standard, when you see what God expects of us, you realize that nobody has any room to say, I'm going to be okay. And then he twists. He says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Okay. That phrase, righteousness of God, 
has an interesting history. We think of like the righteousness of God as the quality of God that, that's like good, he's always right, God is always perfect, or something like that. Um, righteousness also has kind of an odd connotation for us. Like if I were to describe somebody as righteous, it would probably be kind of sarcastic, right? Oh, that person over there, oh yeah, they're very righteous, which means obnoxious, insufferable, no fun at parties, and I don't want to spend time with them. Right? That, 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 that word is, shall we say, loaded. But when you look actually at uh, Jewish literature, liter some literature that Luther would not have even had access to, by the way, um, the righteousness of God is used in other ways. And in fact, it can just as much refer to the fact that God is faithful. If you were to ask a first century Jewish person, like, what is the righteousness of God? They would um, perhaps say, well, it's the fact that God has been faithful to the promise he made to Abraham many, many years ago. So then coming back to Romans, section right here, um, Paul has set up this problem saying, like, look, we're all sinful, we're all broken, we cannot please God, but now God has manifested, he, he has revealed the, how he is going to be faithful to the promise he made a long time ago. Now, I don't know about you, but that speaks to me. Because that means God has been faithful to the promise he made to his people when his people have not. Have you been fully faithful to God? No. Have I? Absolutely not. But God has. He's been faithful to you. And so he says, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, that's a whole thing, like... The law and the prophets, that's a way of saying the Hebrew Bible, had this whole time been hinting that God has something else in mind. That things like the law that he gave to his people was just a foretaste, just a hint at the, th at the things to come. That God had this master plan that we didn't really see coming yet. Okay, next slide, please. That the righteousness of God... So the, that God has been faithful through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Now, again, this is about translation. We have another flag on the play. That phrase, through faith in Jesus Christ, we now know might be mistranslated. This is slightly controversial, but it shouldn't be. Uh, if you're super nerdy, this is called a, um, a subjective genitive. It actually should be through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Think about what that says. The faithfulness of God, after all these years, after everything that his people have done, has now been revealed through this one man who was faithful to what God called him to be. 
that Jesus took on this identity of God's people. He took on flesh. Divinity walking around in sandals. Flesh hitting dust. Jesus eating and drinking and breathing and living just like everybody else except this is the all-creator of the universe walking around. And it has been part of God's plan from the beginning that he would be the one person who is faithful to God's promise. He lived amongst the people who struggled to follow God. And then Paul, we're not going to go through, parse it all out, but he says all have sinned, we've all fallen short, but we are justified by his grace as a gift. You know what I don't notice there? Don't notice anything to do with behavior. There's nothing about doing. In fact, it's all about what Jesus did, period. There's nothing about, okay, you've come to believe in Jesus, great. We have a list of requirements. We have some things that you're going to need to do when you mess up. We have some expectations. And instead, this whole thing is about what God has actually done for you. Now, I don't know about this, but if you've ever, if you've ever encountered somebody who has heard this, maybe for the first time, they might be, you, you might receive some pushback. And maybe you find yourself pushing back against this. Saying like, okay, yeah, that's great. God forgives me because Jesus was faithful but that doesn't mean I can go and do anything I want. That's not, what, that's not what he said. This has nothing to do with behavior. This has everything to do with what God has done for you. And in fact, it's not even something you can earn. Now, I don't know about you, but gifts things that I cannot earn done to me or for me are unsettling. Have you ever received a gift that you could never have given yourself with no expectation of any kind of payback? That's awkward because it takes the control from me and I like control. So do you, by the way. Don't kid yourselves. When Luther started writing about the grace of God, given freely, outside of your control, no requirements for behavior, it truly does not matter what sins you may have committed, ways that you find yourself broken, ways that you look deep within yourself and say, I am not enough and I don't measure up. The relationships you've destroyed, the things you have, the lies you have told, 
The red lights you have run here in Albuquerque, don't lie. Everybody has done it. All the things that you have done that may have separated you from perfection, all the, the secrets you've kept that you know God sees, which is awkward, none of that matters. Because God has been faithful even when you have not. That it is the faithfulness of this Jesus, his own son, leading to his death that has now pulled you into God's kingdom, made you his child, forgiven you, cleansed you, made you something new. That's the kind of gospel that changes lives, fractures late medieval Europe, and has changed the entire course of human history. That's the gospel we're here to celebrate. Amen.